Hi everyone, welcome to STEPS audio channel. We are very excited to share our content from STEPS events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech, and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Enagami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content. All right, thanks everyone uh, for attending this session. So I'll be moderating. I'm the founder of Strategy Connect. We are, uh, I've co-founded uh, Strategy Connect. We are a network of consulting uh, freelancers. We have more than 4,000 entrepreneurs as well as clients on our network. And in the past five years, we have dealt with the topic of scale versus profitability for our clients in multiple ways. They all have the same problems, whether it's a large institution or it's an entrepreneur. So I think today's discussion is very interesting in that favor. What we are gonna be doing is, is trying to get, try to get a perspective of scale versus uh, profitability from an investor's lens as well as from an entrepreneur's lens. That's why our panel today is amazing. We have three investors, uh, three entrepreneurs. I'll, uh, I'd like to invite them one by one uh, onto the panel. Please guys come on and uh, introduce yourself one by one and then uh, we can kick off the discussion and the debate. We have Jana. Hi, Hi. Jana. Thank you. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Jana, I'm a partner at Modus Capital, we're a venture platform um, and our core business is venture building, so even though I am on, on the investor side, I'm very much on the founder side as well. I hope you enjoy our talk today. Lloyd, why don't you go ahead? Lloyd Lobo, recent uh, move here, Dubai, I love it, probably like Miami meets Vegas on steroids. Um, <laughs> a founder of a fintech called Boast AI in San Francisco. We uh, bootstrapped to 10 million ARR, then raised over 100 million. And uh, so I can talk a lot about bootstrapping and, and scaling after that as well. But uh, bootstrapping basically enabled me to sell a majority stake in my company and then move to Dubai, do nothing for a little bit. So you're hard on the profit side or the scale <laughs> side, I guess? I'm hard, I, I think like blitz scaling is like pour a lot of money and, and blow up. But I'm hard on the profitable scale side because you right. could be profitable and scale. Fair enough. Uh, Yusuf, I think you have the mic on, right? It's, yeah, I don't think it's on. Is it on? It is, it is. It is on. It is on. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Yusuf Barqawi. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Alfi, which is uh, a fintech-enabled uh, HR platform. We're still in our young days. Uh, we launched uh, late last year. Uh, we did not raise $100 million, although we would like to. And um, anyway, bad joke. Uh, moving on. So, um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Mohanad. I'm the CEO of uh, Hotjar. Um, so, and I'm probably going to be on the scale side, but uh, with a efficient capital deployment kind of uh, perspective. So, in my last eight, nine years in my career, I've been uh, participating in scaling businesses in B2C and B2B. So, um, I was um, working at a, a startup in, in, in Berlin, in Germany, where we scaled the business, a B2C company, to over a billion in revenue. And now at Hotjar, uh, as a SaaS company, we scaled this company to over 60 million in ARR. So um, that's kind of like my entire career has been on scale. So I'll try to uh, make the argument for that. Awesome. Nida, why don't you go ahead next? 
Hi guys, I'm Nada Samar. Uh, I currently am the CEO of um, 60 Day Startups, which is a virtual accelerator for women. Um, I'm also a, an entrepreneur for the last decade, almost. Uh, sold, uh, well, exited my first company in 2019 and then um, now working largely with, with founders um, and some government organizations helping them set up. Um, so I'm very staunchly on the profit side of the argument today. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm choosing a side and I'll hold to that. Awesome, Leith. Yeah, um, I think it's a good idea to sit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> please, guys, grab a seat. Yeah, yeah I've, un unfortunately, I have to sit here, <laughs> being the moderator. <laughs> you can't be in the center. Yeah, I feel comfortable later. <laughs> okay, uh, late is record. I'm a senior partner with Arzan Venture Capital. Uh, we're a fund uh, based out of Kuwait, but we invest across the region. Uh, we've been investing since 2015. Some of our companies are. Kareem, Swivel, Chucker, and many others. Uh, we have about 45 companies in the, fund, in the across two funds. Uh, we're in our third fund now. Uh, we've invested all the way from pre-seed up to uh, Series B now. Um, we're a team of nine distributed between Amman, Dubai, Riyadh, Kuwait, and Cairo. Uh, I come from a startup background, uh, built a business for 15 years, straight out of college and uh, um, I'm a techie so I build stuff um, so I'm more of a builder entrepreneur than a VC so and I, and I have both perspectives uh, I don't share a lot of you know the uh, opinions that some VCs have neither do I share uh, all the opinions that uh, founders have so awesome excited awesome so I I think we have we have six panelists. I thought like they'll be pure investors, pure entrepreneurs, but I guess everyone comes with a build background. So we're going to hear a lot more from the entrepreneur's perspective as well. So these are, these are I guess, not, uh, you know, uh, very, very, uh, I would say they're honest VCs sitting here. So we shouldn't look at them as sharks here, right? Thank you. Fair enough. So let's kickstart the discussion. I wanted to start the discussion by actually baselining and defining uh, what uh, profitability means, what scale means, and that too from the perspective of an investor or an entrepreneur. So I would like to call in Nida. To, uh, she's advised a lot of startups. She's, she's herself been an entrepreneur. So from your perspective, uh, Nida, you look at finance a lot, right? So from your lens, uh, how would you define profit? One, from the perspective of an investor, and secondly, pro from the perspective of an entrepreneur. So, um, so I'm also a CFA charter holder, which, which, uh, which begs me to also define it technically. It is really revenue minus cost, and what is then left over is profit. But then when you get into the definitions of profit um, from the entrepreneur's perspective and the and, an investor's perspective, it gets a little bit tricky. Uh, because for the founder, I guess, uh, you know, what you want to define profit as is at different levels, um, you know, with unit profitability and corporate profitability. Um, and for a VC or investor generally, profit, and, and don't hate me for saying this, means exit. Yes. Um, and, you know, it means uh, uh, coming in at 1x and, and exiting at 10x. Um, and, and if... If unit economics doesn't make sense and you're still able to do that, that's still profit for them. 
Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, baselining it from an investor's perspective, a lot of investors look at ROI uh, in terms of defining their profitability metrics, whereas uh, entrepreneurs would always look at costs and revenues and look at EBITDA and, and based bottom line profit as, as one of their metrics. Uh, at this point, Mohanad, uh, you've, uh, you know, wore multiple operator hats at Hotjar uh, currently as a CEO. How would you um, differentiate between scale and growth? Because they're kind of two sides of the same coin, but going through multiple stages of different startups, how would you kind of yeah. define the nuance between scale versus growth? Oh, it's, a, it's a great question. And I, I think um, just maybe starting with growth, I think a lot of companies would grow in sort of average kind of growth rates. So even like large profitable businesses that are publicly traded or otherwise, they can grow 3% a year, 5% a year, things like this. But when we talk about scale, it is probably like if all the entrepreneurs here in the room want to achieve these really big outcomes and build these really big companies, it's the idea of sustaining high double digit growth over extended periods of time. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to do. And I would say it's actually like it's, it, it costs money, of course, to, to be able to sustain this kind of growth. But it's a, more of a question in my mind, like this whole this debate would be around is how, like how much do you burn to be able to achieve what kind of growth, right? Like how efficient is your capital deployment even if you're burning cash? Because, uh, and one example I'll give from, from my space, like the SaaS industry, like there's the famous rule of 40, where they say if you add your year-on-year -year revenue growth to your profit or loss margins, they should add, add up to 40. So you could be growing 80% year-on-year and burning minus 40%, or you could be growing 20% and making a 20% uh, profit margin. I would argue when capital is available and you're building a grow, high growth business, an 80 for, like 80 40 is probably, <laughs> is probably like the better outcome. So, so that's kind of how I think about scale, this consistent high double digit growth over an extended period of time. Awesome. That's, that's a very good perspective from, the, uh, from an entrepreneur's side. Yana, do you have any counters to throw at that? As an investor, how would you look at uh, you know, the nuance? I would disagree a bit. Okay. So <laughs> the way I see scale is it's exponential growth, whether double digits or not, but without the linear um, increase in expenses. So when we talk about growth, even a publicly listed company is expected to grow. That's how the analysts do their projections, and then the price goes up or down, whether they hit those growth targets or not. From a scale perspective, the reason it's, um, it's difficult for me to argue for scale versus profit is if scale is done correctly, it should ultimately lead to profit. Otherwise, it was not done correctly. And unfortunately, many of the startups that scale too early do end up failing. Got it. So if I have to read through the lines correctly, growth does it transcend more towards a revenue side of thing? Like how can I capture more customers? How can I increase my transaction volume versus scale is more about operational metrics of uh, how many people do I need to hire? How many processes do I need to set up? Like anything which leads you to capture all the revenues that you're growing towards. So before considering anything, you need to um, assess whether you have a real product market fit. Without that, you cannot scale. The second thing in my view is you need to be able to scale properly without the increase and in, significant increase in expenses. You have to have the correct people, leadership processes, and a tech that would um, allow, uh, allow you to grow. 
Um, without that, so growth, you can grow 5% with your expenses growing 10%. You can be burning your marketing dollars. Yes, your revenue is growing, but it doesn't mean anything. Scaling is you go into different markets, you create a demand for your product after assessing your product market fit, and then it's easier for you to expand without maybe hiring more people. Some businesses, it's much more difficult for them to scale because they need people um, to achieve that high growth. Others where um, they have the right tech, it's much easier. I hope that answers the question. Well, that gives that brings me to the next uh, point of discussion, which is the trade-off between scale versus profitability, right? And at this point, I'd like to bring uh, Lloyd in the picture. Uh, you've scaled your startup boast to $10 million in revenue, raised $100 million uh, uh, in capital. How did you make the trade-off while growing your uh, you know, startup or taking it through that journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, thanks, Shubham, for that question. So I think the topic should really be um, <laughs> profitability versus blitz scale, because you can scale profitably, right. but you can't blitz scale. Blitz scale is like Airbnb, like Dropbox, where they put lots of money when they found something, when they found some momentum, and they went all in, right? Yeah. Uh, and, they, and they're growing faster, testing lots of channels. So that's blitz scaling is when you could go bankrupt, but you could profitably scale. So I'll give you two examples. Um, one uh, company I was on the founding team of, uh, worked out of Bessemer Ventures office, they incubated it. Um, it's called Speakeasy, AI for sales. We raised six million on an idea. We were working there and the uh, working out of their office like a sort of a skunk works project. And we started just spending money frivolously. Yeah. When you're early on, you raise a lot of money, you can have this tendency of spending frivolously. We hired the best developers from Silicon Valley. We didn't need to. They cost 250000 with with everything, stock options and salary. Um, before we had product market fit, we had a, a web team, we had a mobile team. We'd spend tens of thousands on ads to drive acquisition, but these customers were churning. Eventually, we ran out of money, right? And so coming to Boast, I can, I'll share a framework we use to get to profitability but it was, it was four steps, and it was realizations from past failed companies being part of Speakeasy and then being uh, on teams of venture-backed companies is one, don't raise money, right? And, and it's easier in, in the B2B space. There's four distinct phases. These phases not only enabled us to 2x, now not quite the Silicon Valley 3, 4x, triple, triple, double, 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 but still we grew 2x. Um, we grew profitably. When you grow profitably, other than VC, you get a lot of options. We were able to raise over $100 million in debt at a very low interest rate, right? right? So, so those kinds of things. It opens up options where you minimize dilution. At $10 million when we raised, we had the least possible dilution. I could tell the VCs that, hey, I'm not trading a spot for you on my cap table for money in, on the balance sheet. I want to take like 80% of the round as secondary. You want to take it, otherwise we're going profitably. And I, so, so those things, right? So the, the, the framework here is there's four distinct phases in a startup. The first phase is validation, especially if you're in a B2B. You have an idea, can I get 10 people to pay me to try it out? Call, you lose your network, swarm events, whatever it is, nail your ideal customer profile, get 10 people to pay you to try it out. You're not optimizing for product market fit, you're optimizing for is there a market for the solution? Is there a problem? Now, the next phase is product market fit. You got this 10 people. Can I expand it to 50 people? Right? And, and there, the leading indicator is engagement. They paid me to try it out. Every time they have this problem, will they keep coming back to try it out? 
So the lagging indicator is retention. The leading indicator is engagement. If people are not using your product, no way they're going to they're going to uh, renew, right? And and here maybe you're doing founder plus sales. If founder is doing the sales, maybe you hire two salespeople from a B2B perspective. The next phase is product channel fit. You figure out one repeatable, scalable channel to get keep and grow customers. So that could be community. We built a community at Boast to grow, so it was cheap. Or it could be ads, or it could be sales. It could be any number of things, right? Um, but that focus on one, that singular focus, is very important because that's where you'll try like 10 things. Like Peter Thiel said, if you try 10 different channels and you're mediocre, you're doomed. But if you figure one repeatable, scalable channel, you could build a big business. So there on product channel fit, you figure out one repeatable, scalable channel. At product channel fit, you could raise a series B, right? You're likely three to four million in revenue. At, at product market fit, you're likely one million in revenue, 50 customers, $20,000 ACV, annual contract value per customer. So at product market fit, you could raise a series A. At product channel fit, you could raise a series B. Um, or not, right? Like, I mean, you're scaling very responsibly, you're adding one channel. Then comes the point of scale. What a lot of people do at scale is like they start saying, okay, I'm scaling now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand internationally, I'm gonna build like a, you know, double the size of the sales team, I'm gonna add new products. Well, when you started the company, you didn't do those things. You were very methodical, you validated it, you got product market fit on that one thing, then you figure out product channel fit. So when you get to scale, you gotta be disciplined. Right? Just because you can sell in North America doesn't mean you can sell in Europe. So building a team of 30 people there doesn't make sense. Hire one person or keep a person from, um, from North America to call into Europe. But go through the same thing. Am, am I going to add a new product? Like there's this concept of second acts. No company at 100 million or most companies at 100 million revenue have more than one product. Are you going to add a new product? Well, then don't just build a team to build this product. Go through the same phase, validation. Right. I completely understand you. I mean, it's a very, very strong position to be in if you're able to kind of, you know, it's go. Discipline. It's, it's discipline. It's not position. Definitely. Right. So you, once you have that discipline, it's, it's, it's a methodical approach of trying to scale your company, build your company, raise capital and stuff. And it's, it's a very interesting perspective because once you are... Uh, ha have a demonstrated capability of being able to grow your company in such a method methodical way, then probably you can go and raise fund at an ideation stage where investors come to you and say that, oh, you've done this before, I will put money into you. And, and scaling is all about like, it's not about like trying 10 different things. It's saying, okay, you know what? How do I prioritize it? This is a great product framework called uh, uh, RICE, right? What is the reach? How many people is going to reach? What is the impact? What is my confidence? and what is the effort involved? Right. So prioritize your next initiative where it's like, put it in a box. Is it going to be uh, a new product? Is it gonna be a new market? Is it going to be a new channel? Do one thing, because at scale, if you spend 75% of your effort on scaling the thing that you nailed right. previously, and just 25% on testing, that discipline is really important. Whenever I wasn't disciplined, I have yeah. like two bankruptcies before. Definitely. I that's where I want to bring you in, Leith. Uh, you have invested in multiple startups, right? Maybe at early stage, maybe at Series A, Series B stages. How do you guys kind of advise your startups to kind of make this trade-off between scale and profitability? How do you deal with that, with that whenever your portfolio companies come to you for advice and stuff? So uh, <clears throat> I try not to give, you know, direct answers uh, to these kind of questions from founders because in the, at the end of the day, nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And you need to see things play out and you need to uh, 
uh, it's all about trial and error. So I don't like these kind of questions. Uh, you know, it's just as <clears throat> unreasonable of a founder to say, hey, help me get customers. How do I launch in this market? This is not the VC's job. So to explain something that may be very obvious to a lot of people, but you know, in these events, also a lot of people come in for the first time, try to learn about startups, ecosystem, they're thinking about launching a company, leaving a job, and it's very important to know what a VC's job is. It's to take money and return it in five, six, seven, nine years max. They have to return the money or write it off. So that's where the, you know, uh, you know, make it or break it, you know, all out um, mindset comes in. They don't care about profitability. Um, they care about giving it, you know, it's all in because, um, you know, at the end of the day, they can't wait 20 years for you to become profitable and then return the investment in maybe six, seven years and then start returning dividends for another 10, 20 years. This is not a real estate investment. So, <clears throat> It's not evil to say scale at any cost. It's just their job. And this comes from the mandate and the commitment that they've made, uh, as opposed to investing your own money. Uh, if you're a founder, putting in your own money, it doesn't matter. There's no pressure. If you're a bank, you know, lending a startup, there's a different kind of you know, uh, mandate there. So founders need to be very conscious about why VCs say and act the way they do. It's not evil and it's not a personal preference. It's a job. Now, on the other end, I think VCs also have very little idea, at least in, in our emerging ecosystem, uh, have very little idea about what founders go through and the kind of things they have to deal with and uh, that they actually don't have all the answers and that they shouldn't have all the answers on day one. Uh, they may not have the product market fit that will take them to scale. Maybe there's a product market fit today that will prove to be uh, insufficient in two, three years. Um, but this is what they subscribe to. And I think a lot of VCs forget that. Um, they assume, they want to believe that, you know, founders gave me this pitch. This is, you know, ready uh, to scale. And I'll just, you know, push them. And, I, you know, I do this because it's like, this is how it feels. Like, you just go. And... And sometimes you push them off the edge, you know? And uh, this has happened, it's happening now to a lot of companies. Um, it happens in many ways as well, not just spending, burning a lot of cash. It happens in how they push you to fundraise. When, how much, uh, from whom do you take money? So I think this is very important for us. I think uh, to, to, for both sides to understand the, what the job is on each end. Now, um, from my experience, I think uh, uh, this question cannot be answered with scale or uh, profit. Uh, some people have a preference, but I think it's phases. You know, you go through. It's like I feel like it's more like a boxing match. You know, uh, you need to assess the opponent. You need to assess your capabilities and the timing and plan. Sometimes you plan to end it in like two, three rounds, and sometimes you feel like you need to go for a knockout or else you're just going to be, you know, uh, beaten. So every situation is different, and uh, there's, you know, you sprint, you slow down, you take a breath, you, you know, you, you assess the situation. 
Um, and I'm not in favor of the um, you know trend uh, you know trend let's say a mindset where oh we have a you know uh, an economic slowdown now let's go for profitability and then all the VCs talk about profitability and then once this you know uh, uh, low wave passes everybody is like yeah there's a high wave scale 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 and they forget forget everything that they've learned. So isn't that a question of cost of capital, how cheaply capital is available and how VCs also change their mindset to, to throwing money at, uh, at entrepreneurs at different stages? Yeah, I, but I think entrepreneurs shouldn't uh, lose sight of uh, reality. Right. You should always assume you're not going to get the next round at the time uh, and at the valuation and at the terms that you are planning. Right. Um, I've seen many companies, well, not many, uh, thankfully, but several in our portfolio um, simply, you know, fail because they've overestimated the investor appetite, uh, speed, uh, or even honesty. You know, sometimes investors tell you, yes, I'm interested, but then they drag you for six, seven months, and then they decide, hey, you know, uh, it's looking like uh, there's a slowdown coming. Um, let's sense. slow down investment. And they, they don't care about you. So you need to always assume you're not going to get any more money. But... Also balance it out with if you are able to scale, if you have product market fit, mm -hmm. if you're able to maintain healthy unit economics, then you should grow. Um, I think growth, hyper growth, uh, you know, uh, blitz scaling, these are all different. Uh, we can't just lump them, lump them up and just scale. Right. I, I like your analogy of, you know, like being a boxing match, right? Because situations change at the drop of a hat and you need to be ready to kind of take that situation uh, the way, uh, you know, you have, you have your best punch there and that's how you have to deal with it. I think at this point, I wanted to ask you, Yusuf, Yusuf, you've been an operator at multiple companies, right? Deliveroo, Kitch, now being a CEO at Alfie. How do you deal with scale versus profitability? And uh, if you have investors on board, like how do you deal with the pressure that they put on you at, at different points of time during your growth phase? Thanks for the question. Um, so I've started out my career on the investor side, right. and then I moved over to the operator side. And I have been in boardrooms in both situations where it's either why aren't you scaling faster or why are you burning so much money? I believe in this space, as with many things in life, you attract what you, what you want. Right. Very true in this space in that as an entrepreneur and investor, you're going to gravitate to what it is that makes the best match for you and really to align incentives. I think it's, it's not exactly a hidden secret, but the incentives of an entrepreneur and an investor, a VC in a lot of cases, aren't always perfectly aligned. An entrepreneur is much more incentivized in most cases. In some, it's a quick exit and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in, in most cases, you're trying to build a business, you're trying to build something that has lasting power. And as, as Leith mentioned, from a VC's perspective, they're not, you know, invest, this is venture, it's not real estate. So you really want to uh, get these returns. So the, the incentives and, and the outcomes aren't really aligned. So really what, the, the, I'm not trying to fence it here, but really the best answer to this question is, what outcome are you optimizing for? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's never a one size fits all, but optimizing for that outcome will then dictate what actions you are taking and when. Um, sorry to use another sports analogy, but the rules of the, the entire ecosystem have changed so fundamentally uh, in the last 15 years versus the last 15 months. And this is kind of where you see this very big shift. 
To use a very simple example, um, if you take the most recent World Cup, uh, what if kind of FIFA, before that World Cup, decided, you know what, same rules, same number of players, same everything, but one small difference is that the winner will be determined by who takes the most shots on goal and not by who scores the most goals. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the key difference between profitability and scale or blitz scaling, to, to use Lloyd's analogy, is that blitz scaling is just how many shots on goal can you take? What kind of behavior do you think that's going to incentivize for teams and strategy and how everything is going to be structured if the end goal or the winner will be determined very differently? In a world where capital is cheap, and everybody's incentivized to grow as much as possible, I, as an entrepreneur, I'm thinking, well, if I don't sell my dollar for 50 cents, my competitor is going to go ahead and sell it for 40 cents. Right. And it becomes this incredible race to the bottom that really nobody wins at the end. I think the responsibility at the end of the day lies with the entrepreneur. I know it's very hard to say no, but you should be very capable of making your intentions very clear as to where your business is going. And look, there's a 101 reasons why partnerships and investments don't make sense. It's harder to part ways with an investor than it is to get a divorce in some cases. And that's, you know, that, that's true for a reason. So if your incentives are not aligned from the very beginning, and as a founder, you are not able to, you know, and I really respect what Leigh said over here, is that it is not the VC's job to, to make these things happen for you. They're, 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 they're providing a very different type of service. So it really is the founder's responsibility, as it is to drive the strategic direction of the business and, and everything in between, for you to be able to say, no, this is the outcome that we're optimizing for. This is what, you know, T plus 100 looks like, and I'm reverse engineering to what decisions I need to make at this point. And if you're going, and by the way, it's not just investors that will sway your decision. Your customers will sway your decisions as well. They will make demands from you, and then it's up to you whether you decide that you want to live with this or you don't. All the kind of popular food delivery apps and, and car hailing services, et cetera, just chart what the, serve, what the fees that they have been charging all of us have been like. And we have had our lifestyles, lifestyles sorry, very heavily subsidized because they really wanted our attention. And we were happy to pay it then, and we're happy to pay it now. For the most part, I would say, maybe obviously with, with some exceptions. So it really about, is about optimizing for outcomes. Determine what path you want to be on, and then have the power of your conviction to say, even to say no to an investor, or to even say no to a customer, saying, this is not the path that we would want to take, and then this is maybe not the partnership that you need to be with in the first place. So setting expectations is where really this needs to begin. So you're talking, sorry, you had I'd a point. like to respectfully disagree that not always is the founder in charge. Um, sometimes, uh, and as we're seeing right now with the economic climate, the situation is in charge, where cost of capital has become what we haven't known it to be in, in the last 15 years, which doesn't allow us to um, experiment or uh, raise in the way, way we were doing in the last 15 years. So yeah, is it fair to say that founders always in the driver's seat? Probably not. Maybe this is a time where uh, where VCs and founders are actually kind of coming to some sort of alignment uh, a little bit. 
but, 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 that's, but that's the main thing is that the incentives are different. Like at the fundamental level, the incentives are different. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of coming to that term of agreement in the beginning. I'm not saying that the founder, 100% of the cases, is able to say no. And a lot of cases, they aren't. Yeah. In uh, Lloyd's case, for example, you mentioned, uh, you know, you were in a position to call your own shots because your circumstances have allowed you to. But, you know, take 10 steps before that, kind of, kind of go a bit more upstream and have you set those expectations from the very beginning? So maybe this is an investor that you're able to come back to. And if that vision is aligned, then, you know, maybe there's a future there. And if not, there are also investors out there that will still encourage that kind of behavior. There are still investors that will say, grow at all costs. Your competition is going to eat your lunch if you don't do something about this. So there, there is always this push and pull. They are competing forces for a reason. Um, but I still think that, you know, again, maybe I'm, I'm biased here, but I still think as a founder, it's my prerogative, it's my responsibility to say yes or no. I need to have the power of my convictions that yes, this is for me, or no, and no, it isn't, and you know, chips fall however they may. If Fair you enough. overspend, then you run out of options, and then you, you know, um, the times are not favorable right now, right, to raise, like your next round might not come, and so it's, it's very important to be focused and disciplined. It's very important to be an inch wide and a mile deep than like chasing all kinds of customer personas, chasing all kinds of channels. Because like 15 months ago, 16 months ago, everyone was raising at unicorn valuations. Yeah. The interest rates were low. <laughs> there was COVID-fueled growth, right? If you had to go online and digitally transform, 2020, 2021, you did that. You were on Zoom and you were on Shopify and you had to put infra and get Snowflake. If you didn't, then you're not doing it right now. So everyone's growth slowed. The U.S. Fed's increased the rates. The market crashed. Money is not available. And so if you weren't disciplined then, you're How screwed you? right now, yeah. right? But, but overspending is also yeah. just as bad as underspending, in my opinion, right? Because ultimately, I think this is something that also most founders don't get. Like, you can't just wait out the winter, you know? So it, it can be like, hey, let's not spend any money. Let's not grow in the next couple of years. Once the climate gets better, we're gonna raise more cash and you know push the brakes. By that time, if your competition is three times stronger, they will do to your company what the recession you know can't even do to your company. You know, like they can put you out of business. They can lead to devastating consequences. So you know, I think the job of the the founders or the the executives of a company is always a difficult job, and it's very subjective and it has a lot of judgment in it. And I agree with Yusuf here is that I think. Yes, it is. Like, ultimately, your job is to maximize shareholder value, yourself included, right? And that means that you need to make a judgment every now and then and you decide where to invest and where we don't invest. And when we look at things like layoffs happening right now, it's not that all of these CEOs are bad at their job. It's just because it's a very difficult job to try to balance how much you invest versus underinvest. And I, I think, think what comes out of this discussion, a very interesting topic, is like the onus ultimately does lie on the entrepreneur of what direction that they have to take with the company, but then definitely capital also drives different kind of behaviors, right? Uh, I'm just going to be mindful of the time. I do want to take some audience questions. So on this topic, if anyone has any particular questions that you want to ask the panelists, please raise your hand and we'll, we'll send a mic your way. We have one over there. Where? Oh, over here. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Anisha Oberoi, and I think I represent the early stage founder community here. Um, it's a question that has been on my mind because this panel is a lead up to the panels that we had earlier, where the guidance was that 
there is a lot of dry powder, especially in this region, and especially with what's happening in the capital markets. And it's the growth stage, late stage companies that are struggling to raise versus seed or pre-seed. So one of the questions I had was, do you see this changing? There's a session later today saying, how are we going to reshape VCs? So when we talk to growth stage VCs and say, will your investment strategy, given the current climate, ever change to include early stage startup founders that are differentiating and checking off all these boxes that the ladies and gentlemen have been talking about today? Do you see that changing? So the response and feedback is that we don't have the right skill set Sorry, as fund managers. I would just like to, uh, if you can brief your question. Yeah, so the okay. question is for all of you, do you see this changing in terms of investment strategy? All right, anyone would like yeah. to? So, um, you know, assuming that uh, VCs have a strategy that is rock solid and that they change it to, you know, based on, you know, evidence, and I think that's a false uh, assumption. Uh, there's a process uh, that most VCs follow, uh, and that's really all you can depend on. There are individual differences where a certain team can spot certain opportunities better than others. But I think the practice will always be the same because it's a, it's a discipline. Uh, you cannot suddenly say, hey, I'm you know, institutional VC, but I'm going to start acting like an accelerator and start making really early bets without you know, uh, you know, just going investing in ideas. Then, then you're a different type of business. So, uh, and I think assuming that investors can actually spot these uh, great founders, and you said like the founders who check boxes, um, I don't think that's realistic. You can believe that you can, you can try as much as possible, but if those check boxes are so obvious, then you find everybody just investing in those set of founders and just making billions. Um, there's a, a, a very smart guy, founder of Evernote, founder turned VC, and I was in a, like a very uh, intimate session uh, on like mentorship of founder to funder. Uh, that was the theme. And he was saying, you know, the difference between being a founder versus being a VC is in VC, no one will know that you suck at it until after 10 years. <laughs> As opposed to founders who, you know, in two years can, you know, fail, crash and burn and just kind of ruin their reputation depending on the circumstances. So what I want to say is stop asking VCs uh, these kind of questions and stop expecting them to have these, you know, silver bullets. Um, there are most VCs out there are just, you know, processors. You know, they take you through the process um, and they are supposed to take money from one end and disperse it with a process and applied discipline and, and try not to ruin your life along the way uh, or ruin your company or push you off the edge. Uh, I think if we're mindful of that, uh, then we will focus the, the questions on, you know, trying to help founders get through this. You know, it's a tough job. It's, I mean, God help you if you're building a company. It's, you know, you, you, you go home, sleep, wake up, eat, drink, you know, go to the shower, go to the beach, whatever you are, play with your kids, you're thinking about your company. So uh, no VC is going to be doing that for you. So uh, the VC, the founder, yes, is in the driver's seat, but only if you take, you know, the driving wheel. Otherwise, the VC is going to start uh, hmm. trying to push you and steer you, and they're just going to drive you off the road. Could I uh, so. quickly answer um, 
uh, that you're saying that that it's getting harder and harder to raise at late stage um, uh, the 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 lady I was mentioning, uh, but suddenly the expectation is that the the raise for for early stage will change dramatically. Probably not. If if capital is dry, it's it's dry for everybody, um, and and you know the the roll on effects will be felt everywhere. Um, I work with a lot of early stage founders, and in the last um, just within six to eight months, um, it's harder to cut the first for them to get that first check, um, even from friends and family, because it's harder to dish out money. It's just as simple as that, for now. Awesome. Any other questions? For the panelists. Anyone else uh, over there? I'm coming. <coughs> so much light on my face. Yeah, well, who was it? Hi, thank you. Hamid uh, Al Tamimi. I'd like to ask about um, like nowadays, the cost of um, building software is much, much lower than, than what it used to be. Um, so, is that a factor of uh, pushing for more um, profitability over? scale or does it affect the um uh, the equation in any way in any way so just as as something that you know we're, we're so there's two things obviously there's something that that i'm you know building right now with my team but also as someone who is on the tail end of, of a fundraising process as well there's a couple of things on this um the the expensive part is not really building because that, that kind of building towards your first customer that's actually probably the most capital efficient that you're ever going to be. It really, capital efficiency really starts to nosedive once you have that product and you're trying to start to acquire customers. That customer acquisition cost is where really things start to uh, potentially go, go downhill. Uh, how are you incentivizing your customers to come in? Are you actually solving a problem? Will your customers only love your product if, if it is, you know, whatever pricing, you know, just kind of doesn't match with your unit economics? So, the the process of building the the product and by the way not I have an opinion about dev shops which is maybe for a different panel but if you're going to be building it yourself that process of building is even though you're making zero revenue I think is the most capital efficient stage of a company. Fair enough. I Obama have a question next to me. Okay, let's. Uh, that's probably going to be the last question and then we'll have closing remarks from one of the panelists. Hi. Quick question: Is there appetite for investment into IP at all, as opposed to just uh, investment into revenue? And if so, why or why not, and how much? Uh, is that question directed to any specific panelists or? Well, to the VCs in the panel, I guess. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. I'll take yeah. it. Okay. I don't think you can um, split revenue from IP. I would never, personally, when I look at a startup, I would never invest into a startup that doesn't own the IP because then the potential growth of it, whether scale or profit, is really technically non-existent or dependent on third parties. So for me, I wouldn't split those two concepts from each other. I, I would also just add, it's about what <laughs> exit opportunities do you see? What's your exit strategy? Uh, we don't see a lot of acquirers of IP in the region, at least not yet. One final question from my end, and I'd like to get Mohanad's opinion on this. Uh, you know, Mohanad, you have been at HelloFresh and then uh, now at Hotjar. Different investors invest at different stages of the company. Sometimes you have a lot of dry powder available, like the lady said, and at some points you have basically 
been through the grind, built the business step by step. How have you dealt with the situation of dealing with investor pressure uh, at different stages of, of your uh, growth? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think I, I'll come back to the point that, that Yusuf made. I think it really comes down to um, having that alignment between what you are trying to do and what the investors expect. And this doesn't happen, like this is not alignment you build post-fact. This is alignment that you need to have from the get-go by picking the right investors to work with who believe in you, who believe in you to be in the driver's seat, to, you know, to be in control and to, to drive the outcomes that, that you all expect. And I think ultimately, and like this is the last thing because we're out of time, that I will say, you know, conditions change, you know, when we think about the macroeconomic situation around us and how it changed, this is not just, yes, a lot of investors don't have the right discipline or the expertise and they seem like very... You know, like they change their mind over time, uh, overnight. But the fact of the matter is there are macroeconomic forces that dictate what the price of an asset is, how much return investors expect from a certain asset, you know, how much they value profit versus revenue growth and so on. And the key comes uh, or the, 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 the key point here is the ability for the entrepreneur or the operator to be able to adapt quickly to these situations to realign not only the expectations and the incentives of the investors, but even for their own selves and for, for their employees and for their customers. So that's what I would say. Sounds good. I think the gist of the entire discussion is entrepreneurs will forever be in the driver's seat. What kind of investors you choose, at what stage you choose, all the macroeconomic situations around you, you can never be in control of that, I guess, realistically. But being in the driver's seat and taking decisions uh, what's the best for you is probably the most important. Uh, that sums up our discussion. We've run out of time, but thank you again for this uh, amazing uh, panel, amazing discussion. Really appreciate all of it. Thank you, Shiva. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Anrami, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch.